Uh, I have a question. Does anybody want cookies or brownies? Because I brought them. And you're welcome to them. I'll just pass them around. We'll start there. You can. Um, that does not look any better than when I started, but usable. Okay, so we're talking about absorption. We've been talking about the classical model of absorption, the classical electron oscillator model. Uh, and we find that it tells us a lot of useful things. It tells us about um, the frequency at which matter will interact with light. It tells us um, about how the damping will affect the line width. Tells us something about the strength of the bonds based on that model. And that model works pretty well, but it doesn't describe everything that we need uh, for this class. For that, we need to do some quantum mechanics. So we'll do that today. And uh, we'll do a couple things. We will look at absorption in the quantum picture. We will do some quantum mechanics, uh, probably derive the uh, Planck's back, black, uh, black body radiation distribution two different ways to relate some quantum mechanical properties to some thermodynamic properties. And then we'll show how those relationships affect interaction of light and matter. Why you get absorption in some materials, why you get gain and lasing in other materials. And that'll be the, if we get through all that today, I'll, I'll be thrilled. We probably won't. Okay, so um, last time we finished our discussion by talking about cross-section as a way to measure absorption. It's like the amount of absorption per molecule or the effective size of a molecule if you think of it as an opaque sphere. And this sigma is the cross-section. So sigma times a number density gives us an absorption coefficient. Um, and now what we want to do is take our picture of intensity going in, going through some distance and being attenuated and talk about power. Okay, so power is just intensity times area. So if we take our expression for um, here, the time rate of change of the intensity, if we multiply both sides by area, we get time rate of change of power. And on the left side, I've written that as power. And on the right side, I've kept it as area times intensity for a reason that we'll, we'll see in a minute. Um, so we can multiply both sides by, I'm calling it delta x. The diagram actually has a delta z. But if we multiply by that parameter, we have an area times delta x. Area is a cross-sectional area of this little volume that I'm illuminating with some light. And delta x is the distance through which the light propagates. So a delta x is the volume of this little differential slab. Okay, So if that's the volume. Recall that n was the number density, the number of molecules per unit volume. So we can say that n times the volume is a total number. And here and in the textbook, we use a script n to denote a total number, whereas the normal n is a number density. Okay, so the script n1 means the total number of molecules in state 1. And the meaning of state one will be more apparent. By the end of the lecture, we're going to talk about two state atoms. State one will be the ground state. So for now, just the number of molecules. Um, 
we can assume for the moment they're all in the ground state. Okay, um, so that's still coming from the classical picture. Now, the quantum part of this is that the light isn't absorbed continuously, it's discrete chunks of energy are absorbed. The amount of energy, if it's in an optical field, we call a photon. Um, and so the power that's absorbed, delta P, is absorbed as a whole bunch of discrete chunks, each of energy H nu. So H nu is the energy of a photon. It's the quantum of energy carried in the light field of frequency nu. And so if this is the energy per photon, if we multiply that by the time rate, the rate at which photons are being absorbed, we get the rate at which energy is absorbed, which is the power. Okay, so we'll call dpdt the rate at which photons are being absorbed. And that means that p is the probability per unit time. The probability, I should say, the probability that a photon in state one, the probability that a photon will excite a transition from state one to state two in one second. That's what P is. You can also say it's the probability that an atom or molecule will transition from state one to state two, I mean, absorb a photon in one second. And so relating this expression for the absorbed power, the quantum expression, to the expression we got from the cross-section, we can relate that, rate, that probability uh, rate to the number density, the cross-section, the intensity, and the energy of the photons. Okay, so the way to think about this is uh, I'll draw a lot of these diagrams here, are these energy level diagrams. Each of these lines is meant to represent a stable energy level of an atom or molecule. So the ground state, first excited state, higher excited states. And here I've got a molecule sitting in here at this energy level. These are my photons, they're coming in. And if one photon gets absorbed, I've drawn that, there's four here, there's three here. So I'm trying to sort of in cartoon form show that a photon is being absorbed and the molecule is getting pumped up to a higher energy state. So that energy goes into the molecule and now it's sitting at this higher level. Okay, so dpdt is the rate at which that occurs. Okay, so if Molecules can get pumped from a lower state to an upper state. Time reversal symmetry tells us they ought to be able to go from an upper state back down to a lower state. And in the process, they should be able to give off a photon instead of absorbing one. So here I'm adding one photon to the radiation field and going back down in energy. And so we'll denote that type of transition as uh, the probability of that happening will be P21 instead of P12, so to go from state 2 to state 1. And it has the same form, only it depends on the number density not of atoms in state 1, but it depends on the number density of atoms in state 2. 
because those are the source for that transition. So the atoms in state two that can that can decay down to state one. So we have a different different number density here. Okay, so that's going to be critical when, in deriving uh, black body radiation formula a little bit later. Okay. Um, we can relate the probability that a transition occurs in the material to the probability that a transition occurs for a single atom, just like we relate the absorption in the material to the cross-section of an atom. So we just divide the probability that a transition occurs somewhere in the material by the number of molecules, and that gives us the probability of a transition occurring in a single molecule. I don't really like the notation here, but I'm following that of Demtroder. The capital P is for a single molecule, a lowercase p is for an ensemble. Okay, so the reason we do this is because when we start talking about a single molecule, then we can look at quantum mechanics and calculate what some of these values should be. Okay, if we can calculate what they should be, uh, that lets us essentially calculate a cross-section or an absorption coefficient. It's another way to calculate absorption, which is what we're after. Okay, so let's consider a specific atom. This is a, uh, a simplified case of many real-world systems where there's essentially only two energy levels that need to be considered. Often that means the ground state and the next excited state, and we can either ignore higher energy states because they are too, too high in energy to have reasonable population, or we uh, ignore them because we just can't handle the math. We treat this as an approximation. Okay, so a two-level atom means there are two eigenfunctions to its, its, uh, its wave function. So we'll let psi of r and t be the wave function for the atom in time and space. And we'll let the two eigenstates be given by u sub a and u sub b. So there's state a with wave function u sub a, state b with wave function u sub b. It's a spatial component of the wave function. And because there are different energies, the time dependence has different values plugged in for the energy. Okay, so those are general solutions. It's just a, some spatial distribution of the wave function and some oscillation of the of the wave function. Okay, so UA and UB are this, the the solutions to the wave function in state A or state B, and we're going to see what happens when we apply a perturbation that causes absorption. Absorption is taking population from state A and putting it in state B, or emission, which is taking population from state B and lowering it to state A, and in the process giving off light. Okay, so we're going to couple these two wave functions with a perturbation and go through the math. Okay, so we have wave functions Hamiltonian acts on a wave function, and we're not going to. We're going to be able to avoid most of the math of uh, calculating explicitly how a wave function uh, is affected by the Hamiltonian. But let me just say there's an unperturbed part of the Hamiltonian. That h naught would look like uh, minus h bar squared del squared over two m. 
That's the energy of a particle, of our, of our atom or molecule, in the absence of a perturbation. And in the presence of a perturbation, we'll add this term V. Our perturbation comes from an electric field, an oscillating electric field, light, shining on our matter. The light has an electric field that's oscillating, so we'll say E naught cosine omega t. This is our oscillating electric field. And an electric field acts over a given uh, displacement to produce a voltage, and the electric charge seeing that voltage produces an energy. Right? So the energy associated with this oscillating electric field is the charge times the displacement times the field. So this is a potential well that we're adding on top of our unperturbed atom, and it's oscillating at the optical frequency. And I'll just mention what we're doing here is we're allowing the amplitude of the ground state and the amplitude of the excited state to be time dependent. So we're allowing coupling between them. If we didn't have this perturbation, then A and B would be constants. It wouldn't be functions of time. Say the system's in the excited state, it stays there. It's in the ground state, it stays there. It's in a superposition, it stays in that superposition. Okay, so here's the, the outline of the math that we go through to calculate the values of A and B. Um, we take our wave function. We're assuming that the fields, that the uh, perturbation couples the different amplitudes by allowing these to be time dependent. We plug that in to the Schrodinger equation with our perturbed Hamiltonian. And when we do, we go through the math and it reduces to this expression. So I will demonstrate that. Um, it turns out the math, there's not, it looks worse than it is. Okay, so when we apply the Hamiltonian to this, there's two parts. There's the unperturbed and the perturbation. So I'll apply those uh, separately. So I'm going to actually not calculate the unperturbed part of that wave function. I'm just going to leave it as h naught psi. And the perturbation, I'm just going to call v psi. So I'm really not going through and calculating uh, the left side of the Schrodinger equation. The right side I will calculate. So it's I h bar. And I have to take the time derivative of this. And what I see is there's a term here which is time dependent. This is not time dependent. And then this term is time dependent. Likewise over here. So it's a product of two time dependent terms. So when I take the derivative, I have to use a chain rule. So let me do it first for the first term. Um, I'm going to have this time independent part. And then the derivative of A of t 
times e to the minus IEAT over H is from the chain rule the first times the derivative of the second. Well, the derivative of the second is easy because it's an exponential. Plus the second times the derivative of the first. I'm just going to call the derivative of the first a dot. I don't know what I don't know what functional form a has, so I can't take the derivative. So I'll just call that a dot. And I'm going to get a similar term when I take the time derivative of the second term. The only difference is all my a's are going to be replaced with b's. Okay. So for the sake of brevity, I'm going to skip writing that out. Now I'm going to group this into two parts. Um, one part that doesn't depend on the perturbation and one part that does. Okay, so uh, let me see, I just have two terms. So the first term I have an i times a minus i is a plus, the h bars cancel, and I have um, EAUAR a of t e to the minus i e a t over h bar. The second term has the i h bar from the front. There's nothing to cancel that. Again, I can apply the same sort of calculations to this second unwritten term that has b's in it instead of a's. And now that I recognize as the first term in my wave function. The second term in my wave function would be over here. The second um, say this. Uh, 
let me rephrase it. This is the first term in my wave function differentiated with respect to time, neglecting the time dependence. If I neglect the time dependence, that's equivalent to neglecting the perturbation. So I know that this term has to equal h naught psi. If I turn off the perturbation, my expression says h naught psi equals ih d psi dt. And if I turn off the time dependence, that's equivalent to turning off the perturbation, this term and this term would equal the h naught psi. So they cancel. Okay, and I'm left with an expression for the effect of the perturbation. And I have a similar term that has b's in it from that bracket over there. Okay, so on the right, this is v times psi, which I have over here. And now I want to take this expression, which when I write out the psi is the one in this box. This is the effect of the perturbation. Okay, all the time independent terms on the left and the time independent terms on the right are what I canceled. And I'm left with the effect of the perturbation right here. And what I want to do is I want to find a solution for A and B. Find the probability of the system being in state A or in state B after some length of time of being irradiated with some radiation field. Okay, so to do that, I'm going to take both sides of this expression. And in order to get rid of this spatial part of the wave function, I'm going to multiply this expression. First, I'll multiply it by, say, uh, the complex conjugate of this wave function, ua. So I'll multiply it by ua star, all four terms, and I'll integrate over all space. And in doing so, if I have a wave function squared integrated over all space, what does that give me? One. It's just a probability that the particle exists somewhere. And so one of the terms will simplify greatly. And in fact, when I do that, this term, uh, the ua and the ua star uh, disappear, integrate to 1. And what survives from this term is i h bar a dot t. 
e to the minus i eat over h. Okay, so I, basically, I get rid of the wave spatial dependence here. ua star times ub, those represent two separate eigenmodes of the system. What happens when you take the overlap of two separate eigenmodes? What do you get? Zero. Okay, so this term will integrate to zero. And then over here, um, these terms I've written here where that interval I, I, I would have to evaluate. I'd have to know what the wave functions look like and evaluate it. I can't simply say it's going to integrate to 1 or integrate to 0. Okay, so on the right side, I, I would have like ua star times a of t v ua um, e to the minus i eat over h. Um, the spatial dependence of that, I'm wrapping into this parameter v sub ij. And going, if I, have, uh, if I integrate with respect to ua star. I have ua star ua. So I'm going to call that term vaa. And I include everything except the amplitude of the field in that vaa. And likewise, when I multiply the second term by ua star, I have ua star times ub. So I get this matrix element vab. And I can do the same thing when I multiply both sides by ub star. I'm going to get rid of um, the b here, and I'm going to be able to solve for b dot. So this is the same method that's used in Fourier analysis, where you take orthogonal functions, you multiply both sides of an expression by one of the orthogonal functions, you integrate over all space. You're finding the amplitude of a mode in one of the functions. And that's the trick we're doing here. And I just don't have the time to. Uh, go through all the steps on the board because this is, is not is not the uh, main point I'm trying to drive. Okay, we want to actually do something with this, not spend the whole time driving it. So forgive me if I'm going fast. Okay, so this is an expression for the time rate of change of the population of the upper state and the lower state. We want to relate that, we want to turn that into expression for the probability of the atom being in the upper state or the lower state. Okay, so what we're going to do is um, write our perturbation in terms of the electric field. Before I called it E naught cosine omega t. Right, that was our oscillating electric field. And now I'm going to expand that cosine as uh, a complex number, e to the i omega t plus e to the minus i omega t over 2. And that's cosine omega t. And I'm going to write the e dot r part of that, the dipole, as this dipole matrix element. Just a quantum mechanical operator that tells me the same thing, the electric dipole. So it lets me cast this expression uh, in this form, where I've got these uh, 
complex numbers due to the uh, oscillating electric field. Um, I can make a few arguments from symmetry about some of these terms up here. So for example, um, VAA, that is the perturbation between states A and A. And I'm going to say that's zero because when I evaluate it, I'm taking my uh, perturbation times my wave function, multiplying it by the, same, the complex conjugate of the same wave function. That's by definition what this VAA was, and integrating over all space. My perturbation was an electric dipole. It was an electric field. Electric fields point in a given direction. Okay. In this case, pointing along radius vector r. But I'm integrating over all space, and the wave function is for the lowest. Uh, well, the wave function is symmetric, or u u star is symmetric, so it's an even function. I'm multiplying it by an odd function and integrating over all space, so it becomes zero. Likewise, for this term here. And then I write these matrix elements which couple the two energy levels in terms of the electric field that I just described. And when I have these phasers representing the electric field, and I also have this phaser representing the, uh, well, that comes from the energy states of the material, then what I find is that if the argument of this exponent is negative, and I multiply it by this exponent, which is a negative argument, I'm adding the arguments, and I'm getting a phase, and the phase is the argument of that exponent, which is oscillating very rapidly. Omega is an optical frequency. So my electric field is oscillating very rapidly at optical frequencies. My atom wants to oscillate between the uh, different energy levels at some frequency, which is going to likely be at optical frequencies as well. And the product of these two things is an oscillation at twice, essentially twice the optical frequency. It's a very rapid oscillation. But if I take this term here, which is a positive phase. That's the phase rotating in one direction. And multiply it by the phase over here rotating in the other direction. Those cancel out and produce a slowly varying change in the amplitude. Okay, so this term is responsible for a very rapidly change, changing amplitude. This term is responsible for a slowly changing amplitude. If I make the assumption that the transition causes the, or the perturbation causes the population to slowly change states, I can neglect this term. It's called the rotating wave approximation. Okay. We can think of it as the phaser that represents uh, the phase of the wave function of our light, of our, of our matter, is rotating about. And as time evolves, the phase is getting more negative. So 
this ruler with a phase of our wave function, it's rotating around and around. Okay. Our light can be described by two phasers, one that's rotating in the same direction, and one that's rotating in the opposite direction. Okay. So the rotating wave approximation says, put yourself as an observer on top of the phaser representing the light, okay. or if you like, on top of this ruler that represents the phase of the, the matter. And as it's rotating around, what you see is a very slowly rotating phaser from the light and a very rapidly rotating phaser in the other direction. Okay, so you see the one that's rotating in the same, that's rotating with you. That's the one that you can interact with because you have a long interaction time before you drift out of phase. So that's called the rotating wave approximation. And we use it here to neglect the higher frequency terms. And that simplifies our expression for the uh, time rate of change of the lower state and upper state amplitude probability to these, uh, these expressions. These are differential equations. They're two coupled first order differential equations. Okay, so we can solve those using standard differential equations techniques. Or we can use our phasers and if we assume that um, A and B are oscillating, those amplitudes are oscillating, then we can represent them as phasors. When we take the time derivative, we just pull out an i omega. And this becomes a, uh, an algebraic expression. Okay, so we'll let, uh, we'll let A of t the amplitude, or the probability of finding a molecule in state A to have a time dependence that's e to the i mu t. Then A dot is just i mu times e to the i mu t. And likewise for B, we'll assume the same time dependence And then we end up with uh, two algebraic expressions with two unknowns, A and B. We can solve for A and B. Okay, we can solve for A or B, or what we do first actually is we solve for mu. Okay, so mu is going to tell us about the rate at which A and B are changing. So let me write this out. So A is going to look like A naught is e to the i mu 1t. B is equal to B naught e to the i mu 2t. So we plug those in for A and B here. We solve for mu 1 and mu 2. all those mu. We solve for mu, it has two solutions. Okay. It's a quadratic. We call the two solutions mu1 and mu2. And we can write it in this form. So we have to explain what these different terms represent. Um, we've simplified 
some of the parameters up here into terms that are easier to read. We have um, the potential that we're driving with this, the perturbation we're relating to some frequency that we call capital omega AB. And the natural frequency of oscillation of the atom due to the energy level differences we're calling lowercase omega. So that's shown here on the next slide. Okay, so our solution looks like this. It's some amplitude times e to the i mu 1t plus some amplitude e to the i mu 2t. Our boundary conditions will tell us what these different constants are. And once we know those different constants and we know mu, we can solve, and this is going to be some sort of sinusoidal fluctuation in the amplitude. Likewise for B, we get a similar expression. So this mu has nothing to do with the electric dipole? The mu itself has, it does have something to do with the electric dipole because it's got um, this capital omega in it, and the capital omega has the electric dipole matrix in it. So remember, for example, this V is the electric dipole. Uh, the electric dipole times the external field. So there's the electric dipole, there's the external field. And that's the, that's the potential energy of our charge when this perturbation is turned on. So the mu does have something to do with that. So mu is going to tell us about uh, how rapidly the atom will go between states A and B. So let's solve this for some boundary conditions. Let's say our atom is initially in the ground state, which I'll call state A. So at time zero, the population of state A, or the probability of finding the atom in state A is one. And if it's definitely in state A, it's definitely not in state B. So an atom that's in the ground state, we turn on a laser, we shine it on the atom for some length of time t, and after time t, the probability of finding it in state A is given by this expression here. This is just found from solving these two expressions with this constraint. Okay, so you can see that the amplitude of state A is going to oscillate at a frequency that depends on omega. So let's look at omega. Omega has a term here that depends on how far from resonance we drive the atom. Right? Okay, so omega is um, the frequency at which we drive it, frequency of the light. Omega sub BA, that's the natural frequency of the atom between state A and B. Okay, it's due to the energy level difference. So that's the rate at which we drive it. This omega sub AB we call the Rabi frequency. And it tells us um, how fast the system would respond when on resonance. So if this term goes away, the rate at which it oscillates is the Rabi frequency. Okay, so if you drive it on resonance, you expect the atom to absorb right, from the classical electron oscillator model. You have an atom, 
shine light onto it, it absorbs. But what this is saying is it absorbs, it goes into a higher state, and then it must re-emit. So as time goes on, the population of state A goes down. So it goes from state A to state B. So B is sinusoidal. The population of level B increases to a maximum. And then you have your atom in state B. So now you keep shining light onto it, it can't keep absorbing because the quantum picture says it can only absorb when it can be kicked up to the next stable energy level. And if it's a two-level system, it's in the top state, it can't absorb, it can emit, and in emitting, population goes back to state A. That's why these are sinusoidal. Okay, so assuming that the total population is one, and there's only two possible states, A and B, then we know that the population of state A plus the population of state B has to equal one. And in that two-level system, we can say the population of state B is given by this expression. It comes from this. We're just constraining it uh, to have a total population of one between the two states. And that's state A. And when you drive it at the natural frequency, such that capital omega equals omega AB, this term goes to 1. And you can see that the population then goes entirely, it sloshes back and forth between state A and B. If you're not driving it at the natural frequency, um, the population of the upper state can never get to 1. So if omega, if I go backwards, omega is always greater than or equal to omega AB. It's always got this additional term that comes from how far off resonance you are. As you go off resonance and this term becomes larger, this fraction becomes less than 1. So you can, if you're off resonance, you can never drive the atom entirely to the upper state, or you can never say it will uh, be in the upper state with 100% certainty. If you have a large ensemble of atoms, you can say that you'll never drive all the atoms, or the probability of finding all the atoms in the upper state is zero. On resonance, though, that's not the case. You can have unity. Okay, so some interesting things you can do with these results. Um, they may seem all very theoretical. Anytime you do quantum mechanics, that's a, that's a danger. But you can actually observe these results um, by shining a laser onto a system of atoms that's been cooled to be in the ground state, to, have, to, be, uh, to be very close to absolute zero. So there's very little thermal population in the upper state. If you know they start in the ground state, you're basically saying uh, you have the initial conditions that we specified in the math. Then you drive a pulse laser beam onto the system. You control the length of the pulse. If the length of the pulse is pi over 2 omega, if the pulse is pi over 2 omega, then this becomes sine uh, pi over 4, sine squared pi over 4. This becomes cosine squared pi over 4. And the probability of it being state B is a half. The probability of being in state A is a half. So you can take a system that's in the ground state, and you can hit it with what we call a pi over 2 pulse. It's related to the duration of the pulse. And you can put it in a superposition 
of the ground state and the upper state. And that's the starting point for doing a lot of interesting quantum mechanics experiments. You know that you have an equal superposition of the, the, the two states. Um, it's also what we call a beam splitter for atomic optics, atomic interferometers. Um, we'll talk a little bit about how the wave function of atoms can be used just like the wave coming out of a laser to do optics, imaging, interferometry, things like that, using matter waves. Okay? And a system that takes a wave and splits it into two parts, an object that does that we call a beam splitter in optics. And this pi over 2 pulse is the quantum optics equivalent of that. It takes a molecule or an atom and it splits its wave function into two. Started off with a, sync, with a wave function entirely in the ground state, it split it, put half of it in the upper state. Okay, so a pulse of length pi over omega, so twice as long, can cause this function to reach pi over 2. The argument to reach pi over 2. So sine squared of pi over 2 is 1. Cosine squared of pi over 2 is 0. So it can take a system that was in the ground state, pump it up to the excited state. So we call that a mirror in atomic optics. You take one wave function and you shift it to a different wave function. You take one beam of light and you reflect it so it's going along a different direction. It's a different beam that's in optics, that's a mirror. Um, so we may see next time, at least I have in the syllabus that we'll talk about uh, gravity experiments that are done using atomic optics. We'll see these uh, analogs of beam splitters and mirrors used as described here. To actually do some experiments that are kind of interesting and to measure the gravitational gradient produced by oil under the ground. It's used to find pockets of oil to drill. So there's some, some very practical applications, and there's some people spending a lot of money on taking this theory and turning it into experiments that tell them where to spend millions of dollars drilling for oil. OK, so that's a little bit of how, how you can use this to manipulate quantum states. Um, Well, so if you start off with all the population over here in the ground state and no population up here in the excited state, meaning A is 1 and B is 0, and then you submit it to a pi pulse, then A goes to 0 and B goes to 1. And the population goes from the ground state to the excited state. So is your wave function then only equal to the B term? Well, so the B, the B term, the B would equal 1 at that point in time, and the A would be equal to 0. But yes, your wave function would be equal to... Uh, this part. And so likewise, if you we didn't do this, but if you start with a population in the excited state, a pi pulse will shift it into the ground state. And so if you start with any distribution of ground state and excited state, a pi pulse will swap the distribution. So if you, if you start with uh, that function right there, 
-hmm. where a and b are not equal to zero. Okay. Or not equal to one, conversely. And you submit it to a fivefold, it just swaps a and b. Yep. It doesn't kick it up all the b. Because you can think of, let's say you've got half the population state A, half the population state B, then A and B are both going to be 1 over square root of 2. Um, so you can think of this as a superposition of a wave function that's entirely in state A, with an amplitude of 1 over square root of 2, and a wave function entirely in the state B, with the same amplitude. And you apply the pi pulse to each one independently, and then you superimpose the results. So A goes to B, B goes to A. You superimpose the results, you still have equal populations of A and B. Okay, so, you know, in order to really understand the math, we probably would have had to spend two weeks doing that, and I just did it in half an hour. So I don't expect that uh, you followed it all, but at least now you've been exposed to it. If you end up doing this for a living, you can go back and read Chapter 2 of Demtroder and follow it through step by step. Um, the result is really what I'm after, which is that. Um, the atoms don't just continually absorb, but they absorb until they're in a higher energy level, and then they just all they can do is decay back. Okay, and the quantum mechanics tells gives us that. I think Cohen-Tanucci has a good derivation. Yes, Cohen-Tanucci does. Um, in fact, that's where I saw this for the first time was when I was taking my quantum mechanics class from Steve Chu, who's now our Secretary of Energy, won a Nobel Prize with Cohen-Tanucci, which at that point made me understand why he made us buy the $200 textbook from Cohen-Tanucci. Um, it's a good text. It's two good texts, actually. It's very, very thick. Okay, um, so we want to, uh, so we said that the atoms don't just continually absorb, they can also emit so we want to talk about the probability that they'll emit. We have uh, the method of calculating the amplitude of the wave function. But we can also, and perhaps more practically, um, calculate and also measure these things called the uh, Einstein A and B coefficients that tell us the probability that an atom will absorb or emit a photon. And because those are measurable quantities, whereas uh, the wave functions A and B are something you have to calculate, uh, they tend to be a bit more useful to us. Similarly, we'll start with a little bit of uh, mathematical relations and try to, uh, try to build up something familiar from thermodynamics, try to build up something from the quantum mechanics, relate them, and then use those relationships to say something about the probability that an atom will absorb or emit a photon. Okay, so if the probability of a transition from level 1 to level 2 is given by, or the probability of being in state 1 or 2 is given by P, probability of a transition is dP dt. Uh, we saw that earlier. That should depend um, on the amount of energy illuminating my atoms. So if I have a stronger electric field, that should increase the probability of absorption. And 
the constant of proportionality between the strength of the field and the amount of absorption is this parameter B12. It's called the Einstein B coefficient or the stimulated absorption or the absorption coefficient uh, from state one to state two. The Einstein B coefficient is what it's called. We'll see there's also an Einstein A coefficient. So what this is telling me is I've got an atom down here in the ground state. I apply some optical field that has some strength given by rho. Rho is a energy density. An energy density per unit energy per unit volume per unit frequency. That's what that is, a spectral energy density. Okay, and that's what the uh, probability of absorption is going to be proportional to. The amount of energy that's available overlapping with the molecule in space and having the right frequency. And so we can calculate what this value B is by considering a whole bunch of atoms in thermal equilibrium. We know what to expect in that case. In thermal equilibrium we have uh, lots of examples of things in thermal equilibrium. We have experiments, we have theory. And so we'll compare this quantum mechanical picture to a system in thermal equilibrium and say um, what does B have to equal? Is, is the omega there the resonant frequency? No, this is the frequency of the light. Uh, but is it at the resonant frequency of the particle? Um, well, the energy density, if it's white light, this omega will have a constant value at all frequencies. If it's a laser, it will essentially be a delta function at one frequency. So this is a function. The energy density is a function of omega. Okay, if you have a laser where all of the energy is at one frequency, but the resonant frequency of the particle is different, it's not likely going to cause absorption. Okay, so this, um, this frequency, so, so this B is frequency dependent. Okay, so I'm going to try to get to the results by just, again, outlining the math. So in thermal equilibrium, we say that there's various modes, um, modes of radiation. And each, each mode, that can be like a direction and a frequency, if you'd like to think of it in that way, each direction and frequency can have some number of photons in it. And the number of photons, which I'll call Q, the expectation for the number of photons is given by Maxwell distribution, Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. So here's that distribution. So the probability you'll find uh, a mode with a given energy E, looks like E to the minus E over KT, and I have to normalize that over all possible energies so that the uh, probability of finding it with some energy is equal to 1. So the mean energy per mode is the probability of having Q photons in a mode, given here, times the energy in that mode. So here's the probability of having a certain number of photons in a mode. Here's the energy per photon, H nu, and there's Q of them. So this is the um, probability of having a certain energy in a mode. And if I, average, if I add up over all possible photons, I can get the average energy in that mode. 
If I then take that average energy per mode, if I multiply it by the number density of modes, then I get the what I'm after, which is the energy density per mode. And that's what goes into this expression here. Okay, so to find the number density per mode, I start by assuming I've got a rectangular cavity of length L, or cubic cavity of length L. Um, and I set the walls to be black body emitters, set a finite temperature. Then any mode of, mode of radiation inside that cavity has to, ha has to obey this constraint. It says there's a node at either end of the cavity. Okay, so there has to be a half, an integer number of half wavelengths that fit inside the cavity. It's this resonant cavity. I can then say the allowable k vectors, remember k is the spatial wave vector, so if you have only certain wavelengths allowed, you only have certain spatial frequencies allowed. So k is 2 pi over lambda. Well, I can solve this for the available, for the possible wavelengths, or the x, y, and z components. And that gives me x, y, and z components for the k vector. They produce a total k vector that has to meet this constraint. Okay, nx, ny, and nz are integers. Okay, that's just saying there's resonant frequencies. You sing in the shower, you hear resonant frequencies because you're in a box. Frequencies which have a half, integer number of half wavelengths within the length, height, the width of the shower resonate. So there's a certain number of frequencies that resonate. These are the frequencies that resonate in our uh, electrodynamic black box. So these are spatial frequencies. I can relate those to Temporal frequencies, V is CK over 2 pi. Nu is CK over 2 pi. So the frequency uh, in time is related to the frequency in space times C. So I multiply by C over 2 pi, and I get this expression. And if I'm interested, remember what I'm trying to find is the number density. So the number of modes per unit volume. So if I were to plot um, the allowed frequencies in sort of number space, only when nx, ny, and nz are integers is there an allowed frequency. So nx, ny, nz, and I have discrete points that are allowed solutions to the resonance in that black box. And I want to find the density of those solutions. So the number of solutions that lie within a given distance away from the origin. So within a given frequency range, that would be a shell in this uh, frequency space. Within a given shell, how many of these dots lie within that shell? Okay, so what I'll do is I'll approximate the number, of, um, the number of radiation modes allowed that are less than some critical frequency, nu sub m, as the area of an octant of this sphere. So this sphere has a radius of nu sub m. And the area of that octant is approximately equal to the number of grid points that lie inside of it. Okay. The only reason it's not exactly equal is the grid points are quantized and either fall inside or outside 
it's not a smooth function. And then I get that expression here, and I differentiate with respect to nu. So I say, how much does that number change when I change the radius? And that will give me the number density at a given, given frequency. Okay, so here's the number density, or the number below a given frequency. When I differentiate this with respect to the frequency, I get this, which is my number density of allowed states. The number density per unit frequency. And I've divided by the volume of my box to get, to turn it from a total number per unit frequency to a number per unit volume per unit frequency. And this is the number number density of radiation modes. That's what we need um, to plug in. We had the number density times the average energy per unit per mode um, would give us the spectral density, spectral energy density. So here was that um, mean energy per mode. There was that number density multiplying them together gives me the spectral energy density. Okay, it tells me how much energy there is per unit volume within a wavelength or within a frequency d nu. Okay. For a system that's in thermal equilibrium at temperature T. Okay, so that's that is Planck's radiation law. That gives you the black body of the sun. And you say T is 2700 Kelvin temperature of the sun. What does the energy density look like? Well, it's, it's peaked right around frequency that corresponds to yellow light. Sunlight looks yellow. You see examples of that in everyday light. Okay, so I breezed over that because that is just a necessary uh, parameter that we need to compare to. The derivation is not so interesting. Um, we want to relate we want to, knowing that, we want to solve for what this B12 is. Okay. So the probability of absorption, I said, is proportional to uh, the energy available to be absorbed. That's rho, and B is the coefficient of absorption. The coefficient of emission has a similar form. Okay, as we saw before, just as the wave the uh, wave packet can get pushed from the lower state to the upper state. It can go from the upper state to the lower state. So you have a similar expression for the rate at which population decays. But it's also possible to have spontaneous decay. So in the absence of any light illuminating your excited atom, it can just spontaneously decay. And so there's this term here, which does not depend on the external radiation field. And we call that the spontaneous emission coefficient. So this is called the stimulated emission coefficient because it's stimulated by this radiation field. That's a spontaneous emission coefficient. And in a two-level system, the rate at which atoms are being pumped up to the excited state has to equal the rate at which excited state atoms are going down to the lower state if the system's in thermal equilibrium. So we'll relate this probability to this probability. And that's what we have right here. And we know in thermal equilibrium something about the relative population of an excited state to the ground state. It's 
given by a Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. G here is the degeneracy of different uh, angular momentum states. I don't care much about that at the moment. So taking this steady state expression for uh, emission and absorption, relating N2 and N1 by this Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution, I can solve for rho of V, the spectral energy density of the field, in terms of these A and B coefficients. It's here. And I can compare that to the one I just calculated for a black body. A black body's in thermal equilibrium. It's in the steady state. So both of these things have to be true. This is the, quantum, this is the thermal picture. This is the quantum picture. In order for them to both be satisfied, then we have some constraints on what A and B can be in terms of these properties that I have there. Okay, So we find that B12 and B21 are related. This is the probability of stimulated absorption, prob probability of stimulated emission, are related by the ratio of the degeneracy of the upper and lower state. And the probability of spontaneous emission is related to the probability of stimulated emission. And it's frequency dependent. Okay, so that lets us relate some sort of easily measurable parameters to these ones that we introduced for the probability of absorption and emission. Now, we derived that for a thermal system in thermal equilibrium. Um, it turns out it doesn't need to be a black body radiator. We derived it for a black body radiator. Uh, these relationships here hold for any sort of uh, radiation field. And now we can relate these parameters A and B to something that has more physical meaning. Um, so A is the um, stimulated or the spontaneous emission from the upper state to a lower state. And because it's a, uh, it's a change in the probability as a function of time, then we can say the inverse of that is the average length of time it takes the system to, to decay from the upper state to the lower state. Okay, so if tau j sub i is the lifetime of state j as it decays to state i, then 1 over tau is A sub Ji. We call that the decay rate. Okay, we'll often see that written as gamma. Turns out the decay rate is equivalent to our damping that we had in the classical electron oscillator model. If there's no decay, the system doesn't go from the upper state to the lower state, then there's no damping. The system would continually oscillate and wouldn't decay back to the ground state. In our classical model, that meant there was no damping. That's why we relate that to this pr property gamma, which was our damping before. Okay, so you can measure that. You can measure how long it takes a system to decay to the ground state, and that tells you the value of this Einstein A coefficient, which is a sort of quantum mechanical property. The problem is if you measure how long it takes something to decay to the ground state, say it starts here and it decays, um, there's lots of different ways it can get there. 
it can decay by spontaneous emission to the ground state. Okay, so if state L is the excited state, state I is the ground state, I'll call that gamma sub Li. So there's a rate at which it can decay to the ground state, but there's also a rate at which it can decay to an intermediate state, and then from that intermediate state to the ground state. It can decay non-radiatively, so it can lose its energy by collisions, for example, without giving off uh, optical energy. It can give off uh, thermal or nice, uh, kinetic energy. And it can decay non-radiatively to these other levels. So when you observe how long something is in an upper excited state, that tells you about the total rate of decay back to the ground state. But it doesn't necessarily tell you um, what the optical decay rate is or what the spontaneous emission rate is. There's other ways it can decay as well. So the total rate is the sum of all possible, of the rate of all possible decay mechanisms, of which one is the spontaneous emission. And the basic way you measure this, it's very much the way you see something that glows in the dark. You shine light on something, you excite it into the upper state, you turn off the lights, you watch it Watch the glow fade. So you blast your sample with radiation, and then, so say it's a pulse of radiation, you watch the emission from that sample on a photodetector as it decays in time. That's what's plotted here, this decay. After your pulse is off, and you measure the, the exponential decay time. And that tells you something about the total decay rate, from which you can infer limits on the, the spontaneous emission and the, this uh, Einstein A coefficient. You can also calculate this quantum mechanically. Uh, it's very difficult to do for anything but the simplest systems. But it's interesting because then you have a quantum mechanical calculation, you have an observation, you can relate them. There's only a few areas where we can sort of verify quantum mechanics. This is one of them. What's interesting here in this quantum mechanical expression for the decay rate is that this overlap integral, we can say a few things about it without knowing the specific wave function of an atom that we might be looking at. This is the dipole element, E times R. It's an electric, it's an electric charge displaced by distance R. That's an odd function in space. If we have, for example, an even wave function times that odd function is going to integrate to zero. Um, Any time that this integral integrates to zero, it says the rate of decay from state j to state i is zero. So you have a system that you can pump into an excited state, and it can't decay back to the ground state. It's, we call that a forbidden transition. Huh. Turns out, for most forbidden transitions, um, this calculation that only considers the linear dipole term um, gives us zero. The higher order terms give us very small transition probabilities. So for most systems, for all systems, the transition probability is not exactly zero. It's just very, very, it can be very, very small. A system that has a very, very low probability of decaying into the ground state is phosphorescent. So it's phosphorescent. It if you like, it glows in the dark. It can store the energy in an excited state for a long period of time. Okay, so a typical decay rate 
would be microseconds. So something that can store energy for on the order of seconds has a decay rate that's you know, six orders of magnitude less than a typical material. Um, other physical manifestations of this, these uh, relations that we derived. If you find what frequency the spontaneous emission equals stimulated emission, turns out that frequency corresponds to about 70 microns for something at room temperature. And at longer wavelengths, meaning shorter frequencies, there is more uh, stimulated emission than spontaneous emission. At longer wavelengths, sorry, longer wavelengths, there's more spontaneous emission. Um, so here is a plot of the amount of spontaneous emission to stimulated emission as a function of temperature. And it explains a couple practical things. First is why infrared spectroscopy is typically done in absorption. Okay, so we have a sample. We have a laser that illuminates our sample. We have two ways of measuring the frequency spectrum of that sample. As we tune the laser frequency, we can take a photodetector and we can plot the absorption line. Or we can take a photodetector over here and observe the emission. It comes from the photons being absorbed and then re-emitted. We get the same spectrum, just we get bright lines here, dark lines there. A lot of times it's advantageous to do this emission spectroscopy. because you're trying to observe or detect um, a signal on top of zero background. You have a dark background, you're trying to detect a faint amount of light. Over here, you have a bright background, you're trying to detect small dips in that. Okay, so here you can just jack up the gain on your detector. At very long wavelengths, meaning very small energies, if you're trying to observe rotational degrees of freedom in a bond that have very low energies associated with them, these lines are at very long wavelengths. And at long wavelengths, there's a lot of spontaneous emission. Which essentially provides a background. Makes it harder to do emission spectroscopy. Hence absorption spectroscopy is more common in the infrared, less common in the visible. Um, it also explains why you can't have X-ray lasers. We have optical lasers, we have microwave lasers. You don't have X-ray lasers because at very high frequencies, high frequencies means on this plot lots of spontaneous emission. The way a laser works is you pump energy into a system, it stores the energy until some photons come and stimulate the transition down and you get those photons being amplified. But if you have lots of spontaneous emission, you pump the system to an excited state, and it just loses its energy more rapidly. So you don't have x-ray lasers. So a couple interesting practical 
results from that. Um, and I think, yeah, we're, we're already over time. We'll, we'll end there. I'll do a couple slides next Wednesday, because we don't have class on Monday. Finish up the last couple slides, and then we'll talk about something much more practical. We'll, we'll look at some physical experiments that are being done. I mentioned the gravity experiments that use some of these properties. We'll see them in practice.